We're going to come back this morning for uh, one more psalm. I'm not sure that we'll start Acts next week, maybe the following week, but I believe this will be the last of the psalms, Psalm 15. What a beautiful psalm. I hope that you had a chance to read it and maybe meditate on it uh, before coming this morning. I'm just going to start right in this morning with verse 1. Psalm 15, verse 1, the psalmist David begins, O Yahweh, who may sojourn in your tent? Who may dwell on your holy mountain? So when I began this psalm and I was meditating and reflecting on it, that's quite a, it's really a riveting, attention-getting opening verse because it's in the form of a question, and it's a question to Yahweh himself. And as I thought about it, I, I thought, you know, those are questions today that I think can be foreign to many Christians. And again, I don't want us to be looking outside of ourselves. I want us to be looking really to ourselves. Maybe these are questions that are often foreign to us. It's often assumed, maybe even subconsciously, by, by ourselves. With all of, you know, we might like to think, well, we've got good theology, and we've got all this, but... But really, practically speaking, we oftentimes can get kind of pulled along in the current of our own flesh and of the, of the thinking and thoughts of the world around us. can often just be simply assumed that anyone is welcome in God's presence. God is good and kind and loving, and God is accepting. So, come as you are. Now, there is a certain truth to those words. And, and we, could, we could talk do a message on the truth to those words. But as those words are often used today, there is a dangerous lie in those words. O oh, Yahweh, who may sojourn in your tent? Who may dwell on your holy mountain? And the answer, we can assume, since he's asking the question... Since he's asking the question, the answer is not just anyone. What qualifications, what credentials do you need to enter God's presence? And the question that I then asked as I myself, as I was bringing these things to my mind, was, is that a question that is of deep concern to me? Or is this just like a rhetorical question? Oh, let's learn something new this morning. Or learn something, I think I already know the answer to that. Or is it something where I say, okay, teach me, Lord, the answer to that question. When a person sojourns somewhere, he's living there as an alien, a non-native. Okay, so therefore, he is someone wholly dependent on his host's hospitality. One commentator says the sojourner possesses no right of place. You know, and we all like to have a right of place, don't we? Right? I have a right of place in my house. Right? That's where I have right of place. As, as American citizens, we have right of place in this country. But the sojourner has no right of place in and of himself. He resides only because of the gracious permission of the landowner. So when we enter, well, let me put it this way, he's the guest residing in someone else's country or someone else's house. And this is a very vivid picture for us of when we enter God's presence. We need to be conscious of this reality that we are, all of us, guests in his house and therefore dependent on his gracious permission. This is one of those things, again, where I'm going to draw it specifically to this time. This is his house, not this building. Although, in a sense, this building visibly can maybe represent it as we're all gathered here on Sunday morning. But this is his house. And so when we, when we enter his house, we enter as his guests in his house with no right of place on our own in his house. That's, that's the difference. And I believe that should challenge our, our assumptions, our, our entitlement. And again, this is not about convicting the person sitting next to you. It's about all of us saying, 
what are the entitled feelings that I have as I enter God's house on Sunday morning? No longer can we casually walk into God's house. And I, I was thinking about it. How many of us on Sunday mornings, we get up and, you know, we just do our normal things. And if there's extra time to spare, which maybe there is a little more on, on uh, these days when we come, don't have Sunday school. Um, so we have extra time to spare. So, so what do we do with that time? Are we just kind of doing our normal humdrum stuff and then, oh, it's time to go to church. I don't, I don't believe that's appropriate. I don't believe that's an appropriate way for us to address this issue of coming into God's house as his guests who, who don't have any right of place here on our own. I challenge us, practically speaking, to consider how we spend our, our Sunday mornings prior to church. Perhaps that, Im- that definitely impacts how we spend our Saturday nights prior to Sunday morning and how we are fitting ourselves and preparing ourselves to be able to give God our all and our best. Isn't this what we want to think about? A guest in Yahweh's tent is what David prays in Psalm 61 that he may always be. So usually if you're a guest, you're there for a bit, and then you leave and you go back to your home. But David, all he wants to be is a guest forever. And not a guest that's always in, in, in fear of getting kicked out, right? But, but a guest that knows he's been granted a permanent place in that house, but recognizes it's not his house of his own right. Yahweh's. What is it that's so attractive? Because I think sometimes we could say, oh, this is sounding really, you mean I gotta, I gotta change up how I, how I treat my Sunday mornings before I get to church and start, start the official stuff, right? Um, you mean I, I gotta, I gotta be careful, more careful about how I, how I am, am even uh, treating Saturday evening and how I'm preparing myself for God's worship? Well, that just sounds like a real burden. I can tell you it wasn't a burden for the psalmist. For the psalmist, it was attractive. There was something wonderfully beautiful about, as he puts it, sojourning in Yahweh's tent. So I want to ask you, do you feel in your own hearts the same attraction? And how does that attraction reveal itself in your life? The very first word of the psalm is Yahweh. So, I mean, so if you're reading in the Hebrew, it just says, the, the psalm says, Yahweh. That's, that's the first word. Or, in, in the case it's in, O Yahweh. So to whom is David praying? He's not praying just to the supreme being out there, who, who, yes, created the universe and sustains the universe and everything in it. He's praying to the God who reveals himself personally. Personally, let's never let that get old for us or, or relegate God to out there. Let us remember that he has revealed himself to us personally. By name to those that he redeems. So what is Yahweh's tent then? If that's who Yahweh is and we know even his name, then what is his tent to you? What is his tent to me, his house? It's the place where we experience the blessings of his presence with us. Wouldn't wouldn't we not want to fit ourselves and prepare ourselves for that? It's the place where we're glad every day in his saving goodness. And it's the place where we find refuge and shelter and protection. in, in 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 the book that I put together on how should we worship... I guess one of my deepest desires was that we come to see this for what it is. And that we treat it in our hearts and practically speaking, accordingly. David prays in Psalm 61, Let me sojourn in your tent forever. Let me take refuge in the shelter of your wings. Do we understand then now why David is so concerned with who may dwell in Yahweh's tent? Now, is that a question, again, that we ask ourselves? Who may come here? Now, I'm using this as, in a sense, we as Christians, we, we dwell perpetually in Yahweh's tent. 
This, this, though, as we've learned, is unique and special. Now, this sermon, I'm going to be dealing with the perpetual aspect. But, but I, want, I wanted to draw it at the beginning to this. And so, so do we ask ourselves that question, who? It's this equally our concern, as it was David's, and our desire. David continues, O Yahweh, who may sojourn in your tent? And then he asks, who may dwell on your holy mountain? Now, they use language there. You know, we're like, tent? His tent is something I go camping in, right? Now, of course, we might have the sense that his tent is his dwelling place. The tabernacle is what it was. And even after they built the temple, they would still describe the temple with the tent language. Um, But what about this holy mountain? Again, that can be a bit foreign to us, though it shouldn't be, as people who read our Bibles and, and are familiar with them. For the, for the pagan peoples in Bible times, mountains and high hills were places where the pagans said, well, we can go up ourselves. We will ascend into the realm of the gods. So we know where they are. They're up there. And so we're going to climb up to them. And we're going to provide the gods with food and a, and a place of rest and whatever else the gods might need. So when they built a, a, a ziggurat, a stairway, a tower in, in, at Babel, they built this stairway up into the heavens so they could get to where the gods live. And then they put up in the top a room with a bedroom and whatever else the gods needed. In the Bible, that's not what a mountain is. That's not the symbolism of the mountain. The Bible turns that upside down on its head. So mountains are not a place where men ascend into heaven to get to the gods. Mountains are the place where God comes down from heaven to this earth. So it was on a mountain in the Sinai Desert that Yahweh came down and entered into a covenant with with Israel. A mountain that for this reason became known as the mountain of God. It was, it was the mountain of God. So I'm, 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 we're, we're trying to get a picture for what the beauty of this imagery was for David. God comes down. The mountain represents this reality. It's on a mountain in Canaan that Yahweh comes down to, to dwell in his temple among his people. And it's a mountain that for that reason became known as Yahweh's holy mountain. Or in another place it's called the mountain of the house of Yahweh. Okay. So to, 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 to sum it up, God's dwelling on the mountain represents the fact that who is it that comes down? It's the God who dwells in the highest heavens where we can never ascend to, where we could never reach. We could never build a stairway high enough to reach up to God. He is remote. He is inaccessible to men. And yet he condescends to come down and to dwell with his people to come down to the top of the mountain. Right. So, what a wonderful thing it is that we should be granted the privilege of ascending and even living upon that mountain. David asks in Psalm 24, Who may ascend into the mountain of Yahweh? So that's, that's one thing the mountain is a picture of. And that's why David loved calling it the mountain of his holy mountain. But another thing it pictures is God's dwelling as a visible beacon to all the people around it. A beacon of light, a beacon of hope. And so Jesus speaks of the city that's set on a hill that cannot be hid. So when God comes down to dwell among his people... His desire is not that his presence be hid, but that his presence be a beacon of hope and joy and light and peace to all around. In Psalm 48, the psalmist sings, Great is Yahweh and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, his holy mountain. And then look what he says. This is language that we got to wrap our minds around. Beautiful in elevation. Isn't that wonderful? The joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. And then we read in Isaiah chapter 2, Now it will be that in the last days, the mountain of the house of Yahweh will be established as the head of the mountains and will be lifted up above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. 
So this mountain represents God's condescending to come down and live among us. It pictures his dwelling as a place where wherever we are, we can lift up our eyes and see the place of his dwelling from which flows light and hope and peace. And, 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 and that place to which we long to ascend. And finally, it symbolizes the fact that Yahweh is a strong fortress for his people. He's a refuge to his people. So in one of the Psalms that's actually titled, A Song of Ascents. Now we can appreciate that. Psalm 120 to a Psalm 134, I think it is. All of those Psalms are called Psalms of Ascent. Because they, that was the pilgrim's songs they sang as they would go and ascend up the mountain to the dwelling of God on Zion. And as the people went up the mountain, we hear them singing these words. Those who trust in Yahweh are as Mount Zion, which will not be shaken, but will abide forever. So this imagery of Yahweh's tent on Yahweh's holy mountain, it's full of meaning. It's full of beauty for God's people. And we, it's worth the effort for us to go back and recapture that meaning so that we enter into it with the psalmist. Who of us would not want to ascend that mountain? Seriously. Who? And stand in his holy place. So we are compelled to ask, in that light, after we've seen, oh Yahweh, his tent, his holy mountain, we ask the question with David from our own hearts, Oh Yahweh, who may sojourn in your tent? Who may dwell on your holy mountain? Now we're going to stop for a minute before we come to the answer and remind ourselves who's asking this question. It's not just David who's asking the question. It's David the king. And what did Yahweh say to his king in Psalm chapter 2? He said, but as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. So David is the one God himself installed on Mount Zion, his holy mountain. And now David is asking, who can, who can dwell on Yahweh's holy mountain? We say, David, you're already there, right? God already put you there. He himself installed you there. So why does David need to ask? And the answer is that the Old Covenant doesn't contain the actual substance to which it points. Now, we went into this a little bit last week. Now we're going to see it in practicality here in Psalm 15. So, even though, again, God was always saving people in the Old Testament, he worked in their hearts. He regenerated their hearts by the Holy Spirit, through faith, by grace. The Old Covenant itself, when you think Old Covenant, uh, here's the fact, Just get, we get this in our heads. The Old Covenant was external, outward. Everything that went along with the Old Covenant was external, outward. It was temporal, external, it was typological. In other words, it was the shadow being cast backwards in time. So it's like we have the cross and Christ and, 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 and there's a shadow being cast backwards into the Old Testament from the cross and Christ. And so the Old Covenant is simply the shadow. It is not the substance. It is external. It's not the real deal. It's being cast backwards in time by the true substance still to come that's not yet there in the New Covenant. Therefore, this typological Old Covenant it was constantly, never ceasingly, by its very nature, it was pointing ahead. It had to be pointing ahead because it's the shadow. If you see my shadow on the ground, it's pointing to me. It cannot stop pointing to me. That's what it's doing. So this old covenant, by its nature, is pointing to the new covenant substance that was not yet here as the grounds for all the true spiritual blessings arising from God's presence among us. Right? Let me put it like this. So if you think, I'm going to say some of the same things over again so we can grasp this, but in a different way. Any 
inward or spiritual value of the old covenant? Where, where, how was there, if it was external, why was it valuable? It was due entirely to its typological relationship with the new covenant substance. That's worth, I think, a couple sayings. Any inward spiritual value of the old covenant types was due entirely, entirely to their typological relationship with the new covenant substance. So let's put that practically. Yahweh had a tent, an old covenant tent. Under the old covenant, it was temporal, it was external. It was a shadow. And we, we think, well, I could go touch it. Yeah, but but it wasn't the real deal, the substance. It was a shadow cast backward in time by what? By the true heavenly tent and the true heavenly house that was still to be revealed under the new covenant. It was the shadow. So there was also an old covenant Mount Zion. You can still go to the other side of the earth, right, and, and see it. Not quite the other side, but you can go there and, and see the mountain where it all was. But that Mount Zion was a temporal, external type. It was a shadow being cast backwards in time by the substance that was to come under the new covenant. Now let me ask you this, because we're getting to the the key here. What was the criteria governing who could sojourn in Yahweh's typological tent? The shadow tent. What was the criteria governing who could sojourn there? What was the criteria governing who could dwell, ascend up into and dwell on Yahweh's shadow Mount Zion, the shadow holy mountain? Even the criteria were temporal, external types. Shadows cast backward in time by the new covenant substance. So in your handout, only those who were ceremonially or ritually clean were allowed to sojourn in Yahweh's tent or dwell on his holy mountain. You didn't just get to go up if you felt like it. You better be clean, ritually and ceremonially. So if you're a physically uncircumcised foreigner, you can't come in. If, you're, if you have leprosy, you can't come in. If you're a person with a discharge, you can't come in. If you've touched a dead body and haven't been cleansed, from that, you can't come in. Stay out. You cannot come in. All of these things made you ritually unclean and therefore excluded. We read in Second Chronicles chapter 23. Jehoiada said to the people, let no one enter the house of Yahweh. Except who? The priests and the ministering Levites. Now here we're talking not about the courts outside where, where non-Levitical people could enter. He's talking about the, more the inner courts. The priests and the ministering Levites, they may enter, for they are holy. He's talking about an external holiness there. Jehoiada caused the gatekeepers of the house of Yahweh to stand, so, because, because not every Levite is, is by definition holy, but these Levites were holy, because they're Levites. They're descendants of Aaron and Levi. So Jehoiada caused the gatekeepers of the house of Yahweh to stand so that no one would enter who was in any way unclean. One commentator very helpfully points out that people of all cultures, it doesn't matter what culture it is, and all times are aware that when one enters the presence of a powerful lord or leader, one pays special attention to decorum. One dresses well. You, you, you clean up. I think, of, I think of Joseph when he was brought out of the pit and they were rushing him. It uses where they were rushing him to Pharaoh because he was pretty worked up about his dream. So they're rushing him into Pharaoh and they say, well, no matter how much of a rush we're in, you've got to stop and you've got to shave and put on some new clothes. You've got to be presentable for the king of Egypt. We pay special attention to decorum in that case. We dress well. We clean up. We watch our manners. Right. And if that's the case, when we enter the presence of a mere worm, a flesh and blood human being, how much more should that be the case when we enter the presence of Yahweh, the holy God? And of course, here we are not necessarily talking about putting a tie on and dressing up. We're not talking about that. We're talking about a completely different kind of decorum. Under the 
typological old covenant, what was required, yes, the priests had special garments. We no longer have special garments. God did not prescribe a shirt and tie for me, right? And I'm not a priest. So, but in the old covenant, yes, they had to wear those certain things. It was typological. But they also required a religious and ceremonial holiness. And apart from that ritual holiness, you weren't allowed in. Now then we have a question. What about the person who's ritually holy, but inwardly defiled? That's where it gets tricky for us. Here is a, I think it's a simple answer. Believe it or not, you would still have access to the old covenant types. You, you, not, and not, you, you could still uh, enter his tent and go up onto his holy mountain. And many did. But since the true value of the type was only to be found in the inward substance and the heavenly realities to which those types corresponded. Okay, The type was not the thing, but it corresponded to the thing. And so you could still go into the type, you could still ascend the, the, the shadow Mount Zion, but because the true value of those types was bound up with the new covenant substance to which they corresponded, therefore, access to those types was empty, it was meaningless. If you were ritually holy, but inwardly unclean, it was just empty and meaningless. God said to the people, they say, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. We have the temple, we have the shadow, and that's all they cared about. They forgot that it was a shadow cast by the substance. And so the ritual and ceremonial holiness that they were all so proud of They forgot it was a temporal type, a shadow cast backward in time by the new covenant substance. And so it was constantly, by its very nature, my ritual holiness when I cleansed myself from having touched a dead body or when I cleansed myself after being healed from leprosy or if I was a Gentile having just been circumcised to become fit to enter the the tent. All of these things were by their very nature pointing me to that true inward spiritual holiness that is necessary. The decorum. The decorum that is necessary if I would sojourn in Yahweh's heavenly tent. And again, this is, this is for us as Christians, it's all of our life, but again, I'll bring it back to here and I'll think about again how we approach the worship of Yahweh on the Lord's day. What is the decorum that is required if we would dwell on his heavenly Mount Zion, sojourn in his heavenly tent? Both realities in those days that were still to be revealed under the new covenant. Now, David understood all this. You see, we are still in Psalm 15. So David understood all this that I just said. He didn't understand it in in the light that we all do. But he got it. He understood even this. He understood by faith. Get this. He knew he was a type. David knew that he himself was a type. He was a shadow. Not as a human being, but in his office as king of Israel. He was a shadow. Pointing to his own future greater son. Whom Yahweh would install as king where? Not on the shadow Mount Zion on which David sat. With the shadow tent but he would install his greater son on the true and the heavenly Mount Zion, which would come in the new covenant. The real substance by which the shadow was being cast backward in time to David's day. So when David asks the question, Oh, Yahweh, now are you ready? Now you can read this question with, um, with so much more at work. Who may sojourn in your tent? Who may dwell on your holy mountain? He answers that question, not in terms of the Old Covenant ceremonial ritual holiness, but in terms of the true inward holiness that encompasses all of our life. Decorum. 
He who walks blamelessly and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart. And so who's this person? The one who walks blamelessly. He's not a sinless person. And we'll come back to that in a minute. He's a person whose way of life is whole in your handout. It's complete. So perhaps we could say a person whose way of life is beautifully consistent in all its parts. How many of us sometimes feel like living contradictions? Right? We're one thing here and another thing here. So none of us, I'm one thing today and I'm another thing tomorrow or even this moment and then five minutes later, I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm someone else. I was just, I was just moved in prayer and Bible reading and then now I'm, I'm, I'm yelling at the person that cut me off. We see this lack of consistency in us and yet, and yet at a fundamental level, God does call us to a consistency in all of our life. All of the parts. That's what blamelessness is. It's without blemish. It's without something marring one aspect. So the Hebrew word for blameless literally means all-encompassing. All-encompassing. So one commentator says it suggests a life completely dominated and saturated by God's will. That's why... David then goes on to speak of one who works righteousness. There's the God's will part. What is right? What is God's will is what's right, which God has revealed in his word. You don't have to go out looking for it or trying to hear, hear it. God has revealed his will in his word. This is why David goes on to speak of one who... Uh, um, oh, sorry. The, the whole of his life is consistently an expression of the righteous will of God. And I thought of Romans 12, of that which is good and pleasing and perfect. And I just, these are the words for your handout, in his sight. And of course, this man or woman or child, and I always just I say to the, I, I tell my kids, and I'll tell all the kids in the room here, may you be an example to me of a blameless person. It's never too early to be an example of what that looks like. And I have seen that example. This man or woman or child that David is describing is not going to be a hypocrite. Like all of his life is consistently looks good on the outside. And all of his life on the outside looks like he's constantly doing God's will. But his heart is somewhere else. No, this is the one who acts according to the innermost thoughts and desires of his heart. So this is what why David speaks in the third place of one who speaks truth in his heart. It's an interesting phrase, and we could spend more time on it, but let me just say, the point is not that he, he always tells the truth and doesn't lie. That will be true, but the point is that he himself is not false. I am, you are not false. His life is not a lie, because his life corresponds genuinely and truly with what's in his heart. Oh, that's... That's a miracle of God's grace for that to ever be true. I mean, how, how, how often is there a disconnect between the outside and what's inside? But here, David speaks of one in whom there's a beautiful consistency between the outward and the inward. So we see in the first place, a person whose way of life is consistent in all its parts. In the second place, a person whose way of life is consistently an expression of the righteous will of God in whose sight he lives. And in the third place, a person in whom there's a beautiful consistency between the outside and the inside. That's David's summary answer to the question. And then he goes on to describe this person in more detail. Verse 3, he does not slander with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his companion. This is the decorum. It doesn't matter how nice you're dressed up, right? This is the inward decorum that's required of any who would enter God's presence. Notice the emphasis on neighbor and companion. That's really important. So, if you're David, who's your neighbor? Who's your companion? He's, an, he, he's another member of the covenant community. So, he's one of God's chosen covenant people. That's the point here. That's why he says neighbor and companion. Because we could read him, it's like, well, is it all right to slander your enemies? Is it all right to, to um, do evil to your enemies and take up a reproach against your enemies? That's not the point. <laughs> His emphasis is simply your covenant 
neighbor, which means the people sitting next to you here in God's covenant community. In other words, our neighbor or companion is not necessarily a person living next door to you on your street where you live. It's not necessarily your companion at work or at school. It's each other here. Now, that does not, again, mean we can slander, do evil, or take up a reproach against someone else. In fact, as Jesus said, we ought to be a neighbor to everyone, right? Or at least to, not to everyone, that's impossible. We ought to be a neighbor to those to whom it is possible for us to be a neighbor to. But the emphasis here is on those with whom we're in covenant together with God. So the Apostle John writes, if someone says, I love God, and hates his brother, Obviously, he's a liar. How can you love God and hate your own brother who, who, who loves God with you and whom God loves? Jesus said in Matthew 5, Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, and you there remember that your brother has something against you, well, don't be worshiping me. Leave your offering, go before the altar, and go first be reconciled to your brother. Wow, you mean my relationship with my brother impacts my relationship with God? And this is, this is the truth we need to have driven home to us, don't we? Then come and present your offering. The person, if you would sojourn in Yahweh's tent, then you, proper decorum, says that you must love all those that Yahweh welcomes into his tent. How, how, how could it be otherwise, right? So our horizontal relationships with one another are, and I changed this, I don't know if this is in your handout, but I changed it to, this is the word I was looking for and couldn't think of, inextricably bound up with our vertical relationship with God. We can never separate between the two, and yet, brothers and sisters, how often have I, or do we, try to separate between the two? Or think that we can? The one who walks blamelessly, works righteousness, and speaks truth in his heart. Who, who is he? But he's the one who does not slander with his tongue, does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his companion. In short, he's the one who loves his neighbor as he loves himself. That's not just proper decorum. That's required decorum. He's also the one in whose eyes a reprobate is despised, but who honors those who fear Yahweh. Now again, if you're looking at this psalm, and this will be really helpful for future understanding. Who's the neighbor and the companion? Well, he's the one God has chosen, the member of his covenant community. Who's the reprobate? He's the one Yahweh has, in your handout, rejected. That's, that's what the Hebrew word for reprobate means. It means rejected one. So the reprobate is the one Yahweh has rejected because he walks crookedly, he, wa- he works wickedness, and he speaks deceitfully. So if we're going to sojourn in Yahweh's tent and dwell on his holy mountain, then it should be self-evident to me that everyone he rejects must be despised in my eyes. And again, despised how? Despised not like, I'm better than you, I'm holier than thou. Absolutely not. But despised as in the sense of, I see them and they hold no weight with me whatsoever. In the sense of I have zero concern for their approval because their approval means nothing to me because they're, they're rejected by Yahweh. How, how could I care about their approval, favor? And so I have no desire at all for their friendship. I may witness to them. I may pray for them. I may wish for their, for their ultimate good. But I do not desire their friendship, their approval, their blessing, because Yahweh has rejected them. I have no, I, I, I think of them lightly. That's, that's the idea behind the word despise. If we truly despise, though, think about it. If you actively despise everyone that Yahweh rejects, then naturally we will esteem and honor All those who fear Yahweh. Who are your friends? Who are your closest friends? To quote David in Psalm 16. As for the saints who are in the earth. They are the excellent ones. In whom is all my delight. 
Now, I, you know, the, the psalmist speaks in, in black and white categories. He speaks of the reprobate and the one who fears the Lord. And we've seen that in a sense, those are the only two categories there are. And yet, in our world in which we live, practically speaking, we cannot assign everyone to either one of those two categories. Oh, you're the reprobate, I want nothing to do with you, and you're the one who fears the Lord. But yet, it's the principle, okay? It's the principle of, who do I love? I love those who fear Yahweh. And everyone that Yahweh rejects, I want nothing to do with. And that just kind of guides our approach to all of life. That's the decorum for coming into his presence. In fact, the word for to honor means to ascribe weightiness to something. So whose opinion is weighty with me? Whose whose blessing and favor is weighty with me? Only the one who fears Yahweh. I want to hear what they have to say. And when they have something to say, that's going to matter to me. Who's the one who may sojourn in Yahweh's tent, dwell on his holy mountain? He's the one who despises those Yahweh rejects, who esteems those who fear Yahweh. And finally, he swears to his own hurt. And he does not change. He does not put out his money at interest. He does not take a bribe against the innocent. More decorum. And if I sum all that up, it's, like, it's, it's this. The one who would enter God's presence is not motivated by the interests of self-preservation and self-advancement. At least at the expense of anyone else. I'm not, I'm not in it for me. So he keeps his word, even when it's detrimental to himself. So when he made a promise and he didn't know what his promise was ultimately going to mean, and then he finds out what it means and it's not good for him, he still keeps his word. He refuses to profit by charging interest and a loan to a poor brother. It's all right to charge interest. It's not all right to charge interest specifically on a loan to a poor brother who borrowed from you so he could eat food. He refuses to profit by being bribed to look the other way when the innocent are falsely accused because he's not interested in his own profit. In your handout, what this man or woman or child desires and wants more than any temporal well-being, more than getting rich, right? more than self-preservation, what he desires more than that and is the source of his true well-being is to sojourn in Yahweh's tent and dwell in his holy mountain. It's been so good for me to meditate on just those words this week. It's been a, you could say, a game changer, right? It, it's, it's, we, all, we all need those game changers every day of our lives. Is it really possible, though, for any of us to measure up to this standard of holiness? Because how many of you have been saying, okay, I don't know how to get this decorum. Can any of us ever hope to sojourn in his tent or ascend, ascend the mountain and dwell there? Well, we know David was a sinner just like everyone else. And and, and I want us to be careful because there's a wonderful answer to this question. It might not be the answer you're expecting. Might not be. David was a sinner like everyone else. And yet, listen to what David said. I was blameless with Yahweh. Just tell you, he's not talking about imputed righteousness here. He's talking about his his own active righteous life. I was blameless with Yahweh, and I kept myself from my iniquity. Therefore, look what he says. This is like anathema to a lot of Protestants today, because we don't understand what David means. Therefore, Yahweh has recompensed me according to my righteousness. What? According to the cleanness of my hands before his eyes. David, stop. How can you talk like this? But wait a minute. We need to learn how to talk like this. If we can't learn how to talk like this, you can't ascend the mountain. You can't enter his tent. How do we learn to talk like that? David's not boasting. He's not bragging. He knows that apart from God's grace... And, and the faith that God gives to him, he would still be among, what did we just read in Psalm 14 a couple of weeks ago? He would still be among the all who have turned aside, who have altogether become worthless. He knows that's who he'd be apart from God's sovereign grace in his life. He knows that any true good that he does, because he just said in the previous Psalm, there is no one who does good. 
So how is David doing any good? Clearly, he must trace that back to the sovereign grace of God in his life. So he prays in chapter 25. Make me know your ways, O Yahweh. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. And why do you think he prays that? Partly so that he might ascend the mountain and sojourn in the tent. We hear him pray, the psalmist prays in Psalm 119. I shall run the way of your commandments. Okay, that sounds great. But are you depending on yourself? No, he says, for you will enlarge my heart. You will make me able and willing to run the way of your commandments. So, here's the key. When David speaks of Yahweh recompensing him according to his righteousness, he is not thinking of a meritorious self-righteousness. You say, well, I think he is, because he said recompense. No, he's not. And here's why. He's thinking of the righteousness that is the fruit in your handout of faith. And here's the key, that God has promised to reward. Why? Because it's so good, and God says, well, I guess I have to. It's so good, I have to, because, because it's perfect. No, that's not why God rewards his righteousness. He rewards it according to the gracious provisions of his covenant. Oh, that's so wonderful. That's why. We'll come back. I'll say it again, maybe a little more clearly in just a moment. But over and over again in Psalm 119, this is what the psalmist prays. My soul clings to the dust. Revive me according to your word. What word? What word? Why is, revive me according to what word? Here's the word. According to your gracious covenant promise to reward the righteous. That's what his word is. And it's gracious because God was under no obligation to reward the righteous because there were no righteous and he himself is the one who enables that righteousness in us. So Psalm 119 says, May your loving kindness also come to me, O Yahweh, your salvation according to your word, your covenant word, your covenant promise to reward the righteous. Let my supplication come before you. Deliver me according to your word over and over and over again. So let me put it this way. Maybe this is when the light will go on. When David speaks of Yahweh recompensing him according to his righteousness, which is language we must learn to speak. He is not boasting in a meritorious self-righteousness by which he has obligated God. Put God in his debt. No, he's rejoicing in that righteousness of faith whereby he finds that Yahweh is true to his covenant. The covenant by which he obligated himself. We cannot obligate God. But in his covenant with us, he obligated himself. And so we too should be able to rejoice in our righteousness. And now our righteousness flows from the imputed righteousness of Christ. But I'm not talking about the imputed righteousness of Christ. I'm talking about we ought to be, we ought to, be able to rejoice in the righteous deeds that we, that we do in our righteous lives, in the blameless walk that we have, that we speak truth from our hearts. This, this is the decorum that's necessary. And not only that, but that we rejoice in. We rejoice in the promise God has made to reward this righteousness, not a sinless perfection, but this righteousness with his favor and blessing. And brothers and sisters, most importantly, he has promised to reward this righteousness, this decorum, with the right to sojourn in his tent and dwell on his holy mountain. And who else do you want living there with you? A lot of other blameless and righteous people who speak truth in their heart. We said that the person David describes here is not sinlessly perfect. But maybe we're still asking ourselves, but don't you have to be sinlessly perfect? Are you saying that the little sins are not so important or that if you don't sin too often, it's all right? No, that's not what we're saying. We could say, 
how can any person who still sins be blameless? At the end of the day, how can I say I have walked blamelessly if I have any sin? The answer is simple, 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 and wonderful. The one who walks blamelessly and works righteousness is not the one who has attained sinless perfection or who pretends he is sinlessly perfect. The one who says he has no sin is a liar and the truth of God is not in him. He is the one who refuses to hide or cover up his sin. Oh, the grace of God. We instinctively go to hiding because we think that's the way of self-preservation. God's ways are not our ways. So the way of self-preservation is to confess and to acknowledge. This is the one who speaks truth in his heart. See, the person who says, I am blameless, I have never sinned, and I don't sin, uh, he doesn't speak truth in his heart, does he? He, as David says, the one who confesses and acknowledges is the one in whose spirit there is no deceit. He could say that about people. There is no deceit in his spirit. Psalm 32, David writes, How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven. Not who is sinless. Not who is sinless. Whose transgression is forgiven. Whose sin is covered. Who, how blessed is the man whose iniquity Yahweh will not take into account. And we know there we go back to the imputed righteousness of Christ and his shed blood. In his spirit there is no deceit. I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I did not cover up. I said, I will confess my transgressions to Yahweh and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. What sweet relief, what sweet, sweet relief to be forgiven. And so we see again, Again, we see how a truly blameless and righteous life, the life that God rewards with the right of sojourning in his tent and dwelling on his mountain, is itself the gracious provision of the covenant. Not the old covenant, the new covenant that God makes with his people. When it comes to a meritorious righteousness by which I would obligate God, all of us are guilty and condemned. And the pursuit of that kind of righteousness can only be a burden of despair. But, but, when it comes to a covenant righteousness, a covenant righteousness, that is the righteousness made possible by God's covenant with us and that he has graciously obligated himself to reward. This is a righteousness in which you and I can boast in the most spiritual sense of that word and in which we can glory. As the pursuit of this righteousness is not a burden of despair. It's a joy and it's a delight. You know, so I can pursue righteousness, being blameless, walking, working righteousness, and, and, and I cannot feel weighted down by that. I can, I can feel free. Because I also know that God has made a covenant provision for my failures and my sin. To say that I am blameless, that I am walking blamelessly, is not to deny my sin. It's to confess that God's made a provision for it. This is what explains then how David can ask this opening question. Now he asks this question, neither with despair. Oh, who made sojourn in your tent? Uh, no one, right? Can't get there, it's hopeless. He doesn't ask it like that, does he? Neither does he ask it with self-confidence. Now who can sojourn in your tent? It's me, I can do it. I, I'm there, I got it. No, how does he ask? With an attitude of humility on the one hand and an attitude of joyful thanksgiving on the other. Oh, Yahweh, who? 
who may sojourn in your tent, who may dwell on your holy mountain. He assumes there that we want to, we desire to. And this is then what explains how we can answer humbly and joyfully with David. Here's the proper decorum and the required, absolutely required decorum. He who walks blamelessly and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart. So David concludes, he who does these things will never be shaken. I came to the end of this and I asked myself, and so I'll ask you, when did a blameless and righteous life ever look so attractive? What a joy it is to live that life by faith by which we are qualified. Now we could qualify the word qualified, but I'm going to assume that you are able to do that now by which we are qualified to enter his presence, to sojourn in his tent, and dwell on his holy mountain. Now these last two scriptures that I'm going to read are so important. So I know the, yeah, so let's, I want to do an already and a not yet. Remember the shadows? Remember the Mount Zion that was a shadow being cast backward in time? The tent that was a shadow, but the Mount Zion especially? Well, already we have come to Mount Zion. We have, brothers and sisters, we have come to the substance, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. Praise God. Praise God with thousand tongues isn't enough, right? And then we have that already, but we still then look forward to the day described by John Revelation 21. The angel carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain. Not where he was ascending up into the realm of God, no. What did he see there? He saw the holy city Jerusalem coming down. Out of heaven, from God, and I saw no sanctuary in it, no tent. Well, there was a tent, but that's because the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its sanctuary. They are its tent. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it. For the glory of God has illumined it and its lamp is the Lamb. And the nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be closed by day for there will be no night there. And they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. And look at the proper decorum. And in that day... Even the sin that today we have to confess will no longer be present. Nothing defiled. No one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it. But only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Which, at the end of the day, is to say, only those who walk blamelessly and work righteousness and speak truth in their heart. Dear Heavenly Father, we pray that that you cause us to rejoice today in the gracious provisions of your covenant for that decorum that is necessary if we would enter your presence. Father, I pray that you would cause us to love, to see the beauty of sojourning in your tent and dwelling on your holy mountain. And I pray then that as we see the beauty of that, it would be the most pressing question in our hearts to ask, who, who may sojourn and who may dwell? And help us to be be able to answer with joy. He who walks blamelessly works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart. And to see that by your grace you are working and have worked and will work all those things in us. Fitting us ultimately for the day when your tent, when you yourself come down to a great and high mountain and all the nations stream to it. And we're granted access.
We thank you, Lord, for our Savior, Jesus Christ, by whom and through whom this righteousness is made possible. Because we, first of all, have an imputed righteousness that is absolutely, sinlessly perfect. That has covered us, justified us, and provides even now for the forgiveness and cleansing of all our sins. Help us to rejoice now in these things as we sing, as we take your holy supper. In Jesus' name, amen.